All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Redemption Church. Um, on the Sunday of the beginning of Master's Week, um, I tell people that usually during Master's Week, about half of Augusta leaves town. Um, but thank you guys for being here this morning. Those of us who are part of the Redemption family, um, I'm sure will be listening to this online and downloading it and listening to it later in the week. Um, but thank you guys for being here this morning. Several weeks ago, we started moving through the Minor Prophets, which we will be doing for some time, uh, with the exception of the summer where we'll take a break, and then um, at Advent we'll take another break. But we started with Jonah, we went to Amos, and this morning we're starting in the book of Hosea. And we're moving through these Minor Prophets in the Old Testament, sort of chronologically, uh, in the way that they happened in time. But I have to give you a warning as we start Hosea this morning, uh, I would feel... Um, I, I would not feel right unless I did so. Hosea is an incredibly shocking book in the Old Testament. Were it a TV show, it would be rated TVMA. If it were a movie, it would be rated R. And the language is strong, and the content is strong, um, and it's just utterly shocking. And the reason that it is so uh, is because of what this picture um, that God is painting for his people in Hosea is all about. So I'm going to read a couple of passages from Hosea from the first couple of chapters. Hosea 1, 1 through 3, Hosea 2, 16 through 20, and Hosea 3, 1 and 2. Um, and then I'm going to pray for us and we'll move on from there. Hosea 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Hosea 2, 16 through 20. In that day declares the Lord, you will, call me by my, you will call me my husband. No longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. In Hosea 3, 1 and 2, the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible picture that you paint for us in the book of Hosea of you as an unrelenting, scandalous lover of your people who pursue us consistently and constantly. God, I pray this morning as we move through Hosea, you would help us to see the salvation that you offer us in Jesus and the great picture of how you've gone out on our behalf. 
that we see right here in the Old Testament. And God, I pray that as I move through a couple of passages and move through Hosea for a minute this morning, that Jesus would be lifted high and that we would be drawn to you in this place. God, I pray that I would be moved out of the way and that we would see you, that we would see Christ lifted high in the salvation that he has bought for us and how he has gone out on our behalf. God, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of grace and mercy, that you would speak to us, that we would hear your words and not mine. God, we ask this in the name of your precious Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. When I was growing up, I wasn't really into this, but I had friends who were really into collecting baseball cards. And so they would get these packets of cards and they would open them and move through them, look at them, store them in a shoebox or something like that. And if, if somebody found one that they thought was valuable, they would take this baseball card and put it in a plastic sleeve and maybe put it in a binder or put it somewhere where it could be kept safe, where it could be kept in pristine condition, where it could be kept in mint condition. And I don't really collect anything, but over the years, I've seen people begin to collect comic books in the same way try to keep them in great condition or vinyl records or any number of other things that people collect and want to keep in mint condition. For Hosea and for Gomer, there was nothing about their life that was in mint condition. It was not pristine at all. Their marriage, their family, their relationship, none of it was pristine because it was messy and it was unusual to say the least. But it was intended to demonstrate God's unrelenting, redeeming, and scandalous love for his people. Chapters 1 through 3 are really about that picture, the picture of marriage where Hosea is constantly pursuing his wayward wife, constantly. Chapters 4 through 14 are more excerpts of Hosea's preaching of grace and judgment leading up to the fall of Israel in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians finally come in and the northern kingdom is no more. Chapters 1 through 3 are what we'll move through for just a minute this morning. Um, looking forward to some other stuff in Hosea coming up in the next few weeks. But last week we finished the book of Amos, who preached and wrote during the life of King Jeroboam, who is mentioned at the beginning of Hosea as well. So Hosea comes on the scene at the end of Jeroboam's life, probably after Amos is done or when Amos is getting done with, with uh, what he's proclaiming in the northern kingdom. And Hosea actually stays on the scene for about 30 years. We only have about 14, I think it's 14 chapters in Hosea, but that encompasses about 30 years of Hosea's ministry in the northern kingdom, preaching, proclaiming, with this picture of him constantly pursuing his wife. So Hosea, like Amos, is proclaiming God's love to the northern kingdom. And we talked about this a little bit in Amos, but during this time in the northern kingdom of Israel, idolatry and syncretism really define the northern kingdom of Israel when Hosea shows up. And Amos, the focus is more on justice. And in um, Hosea, it turns to idolatry in a major way. You'll see the word, if you go and read through Hosea, and I encourage you to do so, you'll see the word Baal mentioned over and over and over and over.
about the book of Hosea. And at its basic level, Baal means master or Lord, like little L, Lord. It can also sometimes mean husband. But in Hosea, it refers mainly to this other deity, these other idols, these other false gods that people had begun to worship. Right, Years and years prior to the ministry of Hosea, when Jeroboam I came in after Solomon set up the northern kingdom, he established these two places of worship in the northern kingdom. We talked about this in Amos, Bethel and Gilgal. And at these two cities in the northern part of Israel, he had set up these idols that were in the shape of cows. And he told the people that this was the God who delivered them out of Egypt. That's a little crazy in the fact that the same thing happened when God's people were moving through the desert um, and they started to worship a cow and things went bad for them. And yet they do it again. And and Jeroboam the first had told these people that, that this, this cow god, this Baal, was the god who had delivered them from Egypt. And so when you see Baal referred to in Hosea, it's referring to this deity, this false god of weather and fertility that here is just called Baal. In other places outside of scripture, you see this god referred to as, this false deity referred to as Hadad. But Baal this false god of weather and fertility who often takes the shape of a cow when it's in an idol form. And things had gotten so confused in the northern kingdom and strayed so far off the path of what God had laid out for his people as it relates to covenant worship that his people are worshiping these idols. They're worshiping this cow and what this cow represents, thinking that they're worshiping the god of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, worshiping Baal in the form of a cow, thinking that it was God. They were sacrificing to Baal. They were engaging in sexual acts as part of worship to this fertility deity, all while violating God's covenant, all while thinking they were worshiping God in some form or fashion, completely violating what was laid out in God's covenant with them thinking that they were worshiping God. And their worship had become so syncretized with the worship of Baal that they could not even see how warped their reality had become. And that may not make sense to us because we're not going to go worship a cow. We're not going to bow down at an idol. But it really wasn't about the idol. It was about the thing that idol represented fertility and weather and all these other things. And don't think that that same thing doesn't happen in our society. In Hosea, it's about a cow that helps crops to grow. A a cow that helps you to have kids and all this other stuff. But don't think the worship of something that is not scriptural and Christian at all doesn't get wrapped up in our society. It happens today. Over the past couple of years, I think we've seen the... the, um, the emergence, maybe the resurgence of something called Christian nationalism where Christianity gets so wrapped up with our government and with patriotism that you sort of lose sight of what you're really worshiping and what's really important. It's happened. It is happening. It continues to happen. In our society, we worship fertility in other ways. Our society is incredibly sexualized. 
right? This, the same thing happens today. It's just not an idol that's in the shape of a cow. It's an idol that occupies our hearts and minds and works for our attention. And so God's people at this point had no frame of reference for what it meant to have a relationship with the true God. And so God gives them a picture of what it means for them to have a relationship with him and what their relationship with him has, has, has been like up until this point through the life of Hosea and Gomer, his unfaithful wife. God gives them this picture of a husband that is constantly pursuing his wife despite the fact that his wife wants nothing to do with him. If you grasp the point of the picture of this marriage in Hosea of God continually, unrelentingly, purposefully pursuing his wayward spouse, then you not only understand this book, you begin to grasp a little bit about the love of God. We sing a song around here sometimes called How He Loves. We're going to sing it in just a little while. I didn't know we were going to, but we are in just a little while. And there's this lyric in the song that goes like this. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. You know, a lot of times when we hear the word jealousy, we're thinking about something that arises from a place of selfishness. My wife and I started dating. You're not going to believe this because I look so young. 27 years ago when we were teenagers. We've been married about 21 years. And I can remember when we first started dating, as I was 16, um, when we first started dating, I could remember the impulses of jealousy that would arise when my wife's attention was given somewhere else other other than to me at the time when, when she was doing things that didn't involve me. And I was young and immature, and I eventually realized it didn't take long that I didn't have Amy's best interest at hearts and the best interest at heart in those moments. I was really only concerned about myself. I've seen it over and over in the life of teenagers since, especially when I worked in youth ministry, that there's a possessiveness and weirdness that comes with jealousy. And so sometimes when we think about a jealous love, I want us to make sure that we're thinking about the right idea of jealousy here. Because God's jealous love comes from a different place than selfishness. It comes from a place of wanting what's best for his people, of wanting what's best for his bride. In in Hosea, his people are out giving themselves to idols that don't care about them at all. They're enslaving themselves to these idols, thinking that these idols are actually doing something for them. And Hosea 2, 7 and 8, God puts it this way through Hosea. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Right, the point is this, God knows that it is only from him that his people can truly find someone who is always operating in their best interest. God knows that it's only from him that we truly have all things and 
that he is constantly for our good even when we are not. Even when we are pursuing things that we think are for our good. It is really only God who is for us more than we can ever be for ourselves. That's the picture of Hosea and Gomer. God constantly in pursuit of what's good and right for his bride. God knows that our pursuit of anything other than him will only bring hurt and brokenness and pain and bondage. And so God's jealous love is a love that is always for us and always for our good. So if we take just a few minutes and move through the first couple of chapters here, the first few chapters of Hosea, I'm going to skip through some passages and read some different things. Um, The point of this morning is really to introduce us to this idea of God's jealous love. And so I want to point that out to us as we move through a couple of verses here. We've already seen in the first few verses of chapter 1 how Hosea's life and Gomer's life are utterly unique. Because God made them live out the tragedy of Israel's unfaithfulness as a lived out parable. The story is a bit shocking because the idolatry of Israel is utterly shocking. And like I said, his marriage is an acted out parable of God's relation to Israel. Their constant unfaithfulness and God's constant pursuit. Of them. If you move on through chapter 1 from where we read a few minutes ago, you see some more things that are utterly amazing to me. Hosea 1 4 through 9, let me read it. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. The Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, go, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people. And I am not your God. Right? The shock level just keeps going up for me as you read through Hosea. Because God made Hosea name his children. Some pretty unusual things here. Gomer has three children. Hosea is the father of the first. The text is unclear about who the father is for the other two children. But each one symbolizes the judgment of God on the idolatry and the unfaithfulness of God's people. The first name is Jezreel. Um, Let me just explain that um, to remind. So Jezreel is a place where Jehu, a former king of Israel, killed um, Jezebel and several sons of Ahab um, years before. And even though Jehu was carrying out the purposes of God, he was reckless and impetuous and sinful And what he did. And so when God says in verse 5 that he will break the bow of Israel, he means that he is going to break their impetuousness, their recklessness, their sin, their violence, their treachery. And the first son stands for this. 
I find the names of the second two children to be absolutely devastating. It's really hard to read. But Hosea names these kids no mercy and not my people. Imagine that if that was your name. But like Jezreel, their names show what forsaking the Lord through idolatry produces. No mercy and a separation from God. God's pity will eventually come to an end and he will cast off Israel as his people because like in a marriage, there is a point of no return when it comes to the consequences of unfaithfulness. At the beginning of Hosea 2, Hosea and God speak as one about the faithlessness of their wives. The first part of Hosea is rough. first part of Hosea chapter 2 is rough. And so we see verses like this, Hosea 2.5, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Hosea 2.8, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Hosea 2.13, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. In these few verses, we really see the tragedy of Israel's idolatry and unfaithfulness. God wants to be her husband. But she is an adulterous prostitute loving other gods. All she has she gets from her true husbands, but she thinks that she's getting it from the Baals. And ultimately God will punish this unfaithfulness because when he is treated as less than a husband, he shows himself as vastly more than a husband. Right, and what is God's response to an unfaithful spouse who pursues what she thinks is good from a false god and from another lover? Well, ultimately, ultimately we know that there's going to be judgment. An ending of the relationship in a devastating way as God's people face exile. But even that judgment is meant to be redemptive as Hosea promises a future restoration. I, um, in my job, I have um, a bunch of people who, who, who work under my supervision. And every once in a while, um, you have individuals who like to push the limits of what is acceptable and um, who violate policies and procedures, who don't do their job, who don't live up to what's expected of them. And you know what? I hate being the guy to enforce policies and procedures because there's nothing I like less than policies and procedures. But eventually, there comes a point where you can no longer ignore the actions of someone and you have to deal with it. And you have to write somebody up or you have to suspend somebody or you have to take somebody's pay away or, or something like this that hurts. But the point is not to harm the point is to bring the person back into a right relationship with their job and with their supervisor and with their coworkers, right? It's like going to the doctor. 
it hurts when I'm told that I'm overweight and that I have high blood pressure and I'm on the road to diabetes, right? That hurts. But the reason the doctor tells me that is not just to offer judgment. The point is to be redemptive and to offer a way to change, to bring health, to bring wholeness where there has not been wholeness. Right? But before God gets to the breaking point, before this judgment happens, before God gets to the point of giving these people over to the judgment that they've brought upon themselves, and they're really doing it to themselves, God, the spouse that has been cheated on, God, the spouse that has been spurned, God, the, the spouse whose graciousness has been ignored in a passionate, in a reckless, in a scandalous manner, still pursues his wayward bride. And we see that in Hosea 2, 14 through 23. We see how God does that, pursues his wayward bride. But I, see we, I think we also see something there that God wants from his people. We'll get there in a second. What does God do for us? Verse 14 says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Right, it's indicating that God, in a way, woos us. We, we, God's people, God's people in Hosea, we, we're all guilty of harlotry on a spiritual level. We have loved other lovers more than God. Our hearts and minds have been occupied by other lovers more than they have been occupied by God. God has been at a time, at times, an annoyance and a hindrance to us. We think he's simply just getting in the way of what's good and right for us. And we, like Gomer, have been enslaved to our sin over and over. But Hosea 2.14 says that God has not cast us off. Instead, he promises to take us into the wilderness. What does that even mean here, right? It means that God wants to get us alone and speak tenderly to us, literally, the Hebrew says, so that he can speak to her heart. God wants to talk that way to his people, regardless of their unfaithfulness, tenderly to our hearts. Right? So, so don't think that we are too rotten or too covered with shame for God to pursue us, for God to pursue his people. God knows that his wife is a harlot, and God still pursues her anyway. And that's the meaning of mercy, right? God's intent is to restore the relationship that he has with his people. Look at what verses 19 through 20 say, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Right, those verses right there, I think, are probably the most scandalous verses in all of Hosea. And here's the reason why. That verse 20 finishes with God saying, and you shall know the Lord. Right, and to see what that means, we need to see the pe peculiar use of the word know in the Bible. Genesis 4.1 says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Matthew 1.25 says, Joseph knew her, Mary not, until she had borne a son. 
right, in the context of a broken marriage, in the context of being renewed with a betrothal all over again, with the marriage of God and His people starting over afresh and anew, don't those words mean that God will not keep His wife of harlotry at a distance? Don't those words mean that when she returns to her husband, when Israel comes home to God, when we come home to our husband, he will withhold nothing, not keeping us at a distance, at arm's length, constantly withholding from us. Instead, God will accept us into his arms like it's the beginning of the relationship all over again, like it's brand new. Right, that's the gospel in Hosea. God constantly offering undeserved redemption. God constantly inviting us in. And ultimately we see that fulfilled in Jesus. It would not be possible for us apart from Jesus. But that's the gospel in Hosea. God withholding nothing from his wayward spouse. I think we finally see in this passage what God wants from his people. It's probably one of my favorite verses in all of Hosea. Hosea 2.16 says, And in that day declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Like I said, what part of what happened in Israel is is that they had so confused the worship of God with the worship of idols, with the worship of false gods, with the worship of, of Baal. So they didn't, they didn't even know what it meant to have a relationship with their God. And so part of the point of the story of Hosea and Gomer is for God to give his people a picture of what it meant to relate to him properly. And God says, you will no longer call me my Baal, you will call me husband. God wants to be known and called by the right name. And everything had become so syncretized in their world that they did not even realize the extent of their unfaithfulness and their idolatry. And so God gives them this incredible picture of Hosea and Gomer. The picture of a, a wayward spouse being constantly pursued by a husband who just wants to be known as the one who is out for her good, who rightly desires an exclusive relationship with his wife, because that's part of what it means to be connected in a covenantal way through marriage. If you move on from chapter 2 and you go to chapter 3, you'll see that despite the constant pursuit of his wife, despite Hosea's constant pursuit of Gomer, despite God's constant pursuit of his people, Hosea eventually has to redeem his wife from slavery. Her unfaithfulness had led her to leave over and over again. And in chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, we find Gomer at rock bottom, somehow being sold as a slave because the lover she had left Hosea for, the lovers she had left Hosea for, have done nothing good for her. They've only enslaved her. That's a picture of idolatry there used her, and now trying to benefit from her monetarily. But listen to these verses in Hosea 3, 1 and 2. And the Lord 
said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. All right, some scholars say that 30 shekels was the going price of a slave in those days. And the fact that Hosea could only come up with 15 shekels of silver and had to pay the rest in kind with barley indicates Hosea didn't have what it took. And yet he found a way. He went out for Gomer. He still did it. What profound love that points straight to Jesus, the true and better Hosea, who had everything it took to pay for the redemption of God's people, of his spouse. Jesus, who paid so much that the promises of Hosea 2.23 might come true, when it says, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. How beautiful a picture of what God has done for us. He changes our name. He withholds nothing. He makes us his own despite our shame and brokenness. And he does that through Jesus. Our God who constantly pursues his wayward spouse. Our God who has provided a way for us to be redeemed, purchased from sin, Satan, and death, and made whole. Our God who pursues us because he loves us. And he does that through Jesus. Let me just wrap up with this. Part of why Hosea exists is to help us understand how horrible sin is. Part of why Hosea exists is for us to, to understand that God sees our pursuit of idols is adultery. And don't think that our heart doesn't pursue idols. I said it earlier, we don't bow down and worship a cow. But we pursue all kinds of things that work as functional idols in the place of God. We pursue all sorts of things that occupy our hearts and minds more than God. And ultimately those idols don't do anything other than enslave us and ruin us and mess up everything. They blind us to reality, and our worship of them offends a holy God. But Hosea also exists to show us that despite our unfaithfulness, God still pursues us. In all our shame and depravity, God still moves in our direction. And so the point of Hosea is that for us, to be reminded of the great love of God who has gone out for us as a true and better Hosea to redeem us, to provide a way for us to be reconciled once again to God. We're going to enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday at Redemption. During our time of response, you have the opportunity to do a few different things. The band is going to come and lead us in some songs and we have a chance to sing 
and to worship by singing. We have opportunity to sit where we are and reflect on what we've heard, to reflect on what God is doing in our hearts and minds, maybe that God is calling us back to Him. We have an opportunity to give. There's a giving basket in the back where you can do that. We have an opportunity to take communion on each side up here. Um, there's some bread that you can tear off, dip into the wine or to the juice. Remember the body of Christ that was given for us. Remember the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And jointly together proclaim that the gospel is true and good. That's why we take communion. We remember what Christ has done. We proclaim to one another that we believe it. And we do that as a community together, believing, proclaiming, remembering how God has gone out for us. I'm going to pray and we'll move on with that. God, thank you for our opportunity, these brief moments, to take a look at the book of Hosea. God, where the words that we hear are shocking, but even more scandalous than the words of Hosea is your love for us. So God, I pray that deep into our hearts and minds, you would remind us of that love. I pray that in our remaining few minutes, Jesus would be lifted high, that we would be drawn to you because of Christ. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Jesus. Amen.